Just one tank. Just one tank sent back in time to the Renaissance era. <laughs> He's on a horse with a machine gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All of our gore is slowing it down. Keep going, boys. I'm a little frightened, but I will do it for science. Greetings, Wanderers. Welcome to the Return Cart. I'm your host, Chrissy. Today we have with us... Uh, Hey, guys. This is Kren. Howdy. This is Starla. And this is Martin. This episode features author Emily Ma, who writes both under that name and Ian Tippett. Under the name Ian Tippett, she has written Someone Else's Fairy Tale series and the Shattered Castle series, both of which are romance, are chick lit, which reminds me of the uh, phrase "kitty chicklets." <laughs> Thank you. It was actually the delay there. I think that got me. <laughs> the delay stare. <laughs> Under Emily Ma is where she writes science fiction slash fantasy. Her short stories have landed in anthologies such as Shanghai Steam, Under the Needle's Eye, and many more. The most recent one being uh, Anthology of the Change Universe by S.M. Sterling. Emily has also set up a book design and formatting company called Emily Tippett's Book Designs. And if that weren't busy enough, she conducts her own author interviews for Blackgate.com. I will be posting links up to all of these in the episode description. Um, Now, for this episode, it's going to be a little bit different. I thought I would do things a little bit differently. Instead of focusing on a single work by Emily Ma, we're going to be talking about self-publishing as a whole, including the things that Emily Ma has done uh, to become as successful as she has been with uh, her works, because she has sold a lot under Emily Tippett's, and it's been amazing. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, to start this off, before we get into the interview, we're going to talk about some conceptions and misconceptions we have about self and indie publishing. So does anyone want to start out? No. Nope. No. You can You can go on. <laughs> No, um, not at all. So, like, general conce- uh, misconceptions? Yeah, general misconceptions. Um, well, the, the number one misconception that I would imagine is pretty prevalent is the idea that just because it couldn't get uh, published um, by a mainstream publisher, uh, that uh, the content inside of the book is probably pretty crappy. And that's a complete misconception. Um, uh, some of these authors who just decide to go directly to Amazon or or uh, any other online vendor uh, bypass uh, traditional publishing as as a uh, as a whole, and so it's not like publishers as an entity are the end all be all for good storylines, and that's that's uh, that's a big one. I mean, we saw it with Scott, uh, we've seen it with miscellaneous other works. Uh, that's just not true. Yeah. That's very true. I was asking a couple of authors on Twitter about some misconceptions that people have towards work that they do um, as indie self-publishers. Um, and they talk about that a lot. I think each and every one who I asked talked about how people seem to think that they just couldn't cut it into traditional publishing when that wasn't the case at all. Some of them didn't even go towards traditional publishing, instead went straight to indie self-publishing uh, because some of the benefits are that you can control what's on your book covers and you can control the format of your books. That's right. Yeah. And you can even control the title of your books, which sometimes as a traditional um, author, that's not the case. 
And, and I think the other common misconception is that it's incredibly easy uh, to self-publish. You just kind of uh, take the thing, zip it up, and slap it on Amazon. And that's also not the case. It takes a lot of work to to either edit it yourself or get it edited uh, to provide um, any art that you were going to have for the cover and formatting. And there, there's a lot involved with making sure that it's a nice, clean cut book uh, when you actually post it up on Amazon. So have any of you guys really looked into um, checking out self-published books, like reading them, all that other stuff? Uh, I mean, Scott's stuff. Uh, for sure. There's been some other miscellaneous stuff that I've, I've picked up over the years as far as uh, just kind of offered for free on Amazon, like the first copy of a book and picked it up and read it. Um, the vast majority of what I read is usually through audiobook. And so that's kind of a space that's a little bit more difficult for self-publishing to get into as far as like, if I, as far as I'm aware. I mean, uh, I could be entirely wrong about that assumption, but I just imagine that you have to go and take a fair amount of capital to go throw it at somebody to go do your recording for you uh, versus it probably being built into a publishing deal. I, I would picture, but I don't know exactly. I think how that works is usually you sell the rights to um, to the audiobook and it gets I think done like it, that way. It, and that's possible. I think in the case of like LibriVox, it would just be like someone out there – um, you, you find somebody who you like to do the recording for you listen to a whole bunch of audiobooks and you, you ask them nicely like hey you, you mind uh, you know recording this 400 500 page novel for me mm-hmm. now star you've read a, quite a few um, self-published works what are some some expectations you have going into a work that may be self-published that you wouldn't necessarily have for traditional publishing or is there any that you have um I agree with what Martin was talking about with misconceptions, like sometimes, you know, I wonder like, oh, is the quality of this book going to be as high? Uh, is there going to be a lot of editing and spelling problems? Um, but usually what happens to me is I buy a book on Amazon and I don't buy it based on whether or not it's self-published or not. And then afterwards I discover that it was or wasn't. And sometimes I'm like, ah, yes, this definitely seemed like a self-published book. And other times I'm pleasantly surprised. I'm like, oh, I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, I can imagine that. One of the things that I find interesting is that um, some people have this conception that if when you self-publish, like you're just automatically going to sell books. Right. Uh, yeah. 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 And that's not the case at all. I have found. <laughs> yeah. In fact, like I was saying beforehand, I've seen um, self-published works where usually the first book is free, right. Mm-hmm. As the hook or um, they're offered at such a low price. It's almost like I can't, yeah, there's no way, you know, I, mm-hmm. I have to pick this thing up. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't think that it's an immediate way to just go in there and produce uh, a book and generate large sources of revenue from the book, uh, you know, from the get go, right? You, uh, in the same caveat of you deciding not to go with a publisher, you don't have the same publisher backing. You don't have um, advertisement uh, ability that's pushed by a publisher. Mm-hmm. You don't have uh, associations that the publisher has to be able to get out in social media world and kind of advertise that book. And so it's actually, I think, a little bit harder to get your book. Um, it kind of pushed around the book sphere um, yeah. when you go self-publishing route. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, going the self-publishing route, you're essentially putting yourself in the driver's seat. 
Yeah, for mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. yeah, all advertising for uh, uh, the design of the covers and all of that, and it does it it does seem like it's uh, quite a big burden to put on one person, um, especially since you know I'm I'm, I'm sure some <clears throat> some of these uh, um, self publishers that that you're telling me about before would you know. Uh, not <laughs> might use an editor might not and so like like star was saying you know uh, you could kind of tell <laughs> yeah yeah and there's probably mm-hmm. a, a good like um, there's there's the type of individual that's just going to do really well in self-publishing like when when christina was talking to emily ma i got to sit in on the recording i was mm-hmm. doing the monkey stuff behind the scenes and um like emily is just that type of person and I think it takes the the type of individual who's just willing to get out there, constantly push to get something done, look at alternate um, ways of actually accomplishing what they want, and then many times learning and reading and and just trying to absorb as much extra material as you can so that you can produce the best possible book. Um, and I don't think everyone's really fit for that. I think a lot of people are just going to want to turn it over to somebody else and kind of have them, you know, take their baby from essentially the beginning steps to the end after you're done writing the novel. Well, and what um, and what were you telling me, Star? Is that ten percent was spent writing? Yes. Yeah. So I read an article that was through the Guardian by Roz Barber, and she was saying basically she doesn't want to self-publish because for her, ten percent of your time will be spent writing, and the other ninety percent is just selling your book. So if you're someone who really loves writing, like maybe yeah. self-publishing isn't for you because so much of your energy is going to go towards just getting it out there, and. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think about that like 10% of your time is spent writing and then other 90% is spent thinking about cover designs, thinking about formatting, thinking about how you're going to market this. And all of that is time spent. And what's the old adage is time is money. That's, that's right. Yes. And obviously don't let that dissuade anyone from wanting to go oh, to self-publishing. Yeah, by, by yeah, all means. They're just negative. That's, yeah, just, uh, mm-hmm. Oh, uh, she was also saying to be careful, too, because socially being a self-publisher, it might mean that you have to go to your friends a lot and be like, hey, read my book. Hey, read my book. And then on your social media, like, hey, read my book. And your friends are like, oh, my gosh, I get it enough. So you have to kind of be careful. Yeah. And as Martin was saying, that's not to dissuade anyone from from going into self-publishing if that's what you really want to do, but rather to say, don't don't also become disillusioned by thinking it's going to be easy either. I don't think either avenue is easy. It's not easy to go to traditional publishing and get rejected time and time again, which happens with so many authors who who look to get their work done yeah. through traditional publishing. But just as well, it's not, it's not just put up your book and then put up your feet and relax with self-publishing either. You're going to have to put in some work of of getting your stuff edited are going to workshops um, and all those other things as well. Yep. <clears throat> so that's, that's what we're getting into today is that self-publishing <laughs> is not easy at all. <laughs> and, and mad props for those who do it and, and become successful. Sure. Yes. Yes. Very much so. And like, admittedly, I didn't really get into too much self-published works or indie works until this blog but I'm really glad that I am getting into it. Like I've, I read The Prisoner, um, which I enjoyed. There were some things in it that, um, that made it a three star instead of a five star read for me. But I enjoyed it, and I found enjoyment through that book. There's also another book called Corrigan, 
which I thought was extremely fascinating. And that one was pretty good too. So there are works out there that through self-publishing that are just really good. Well, one thing that I'm wondering, and you guys might be able to see it more than I can, but it, it seems to me as though like the traditional model with publishers is anything that's really popular at a given time, you start seeing more of those books get churned out by them because like, for instance, uh, dystopian novels, right? Mm-hmm. There's this huge influx of like zombie and dystopian novels that came out. And it seems like that's kind of just like the same old grind kind of thing from a publisher. Like, oh, wait, this is really hot. We got to just make sure that we find this product and push it. And when you have these these uh, ebbs and these, these kind of waves that just take place inside of the publishing world uh, – Going to self-publishing as as far as a, from a reader's perspective is a way to look, find something fresh that's not currently just being the the same old you know kind of cogged out uh, novels that you see through traditional publishing. But I don't know. I mean, you guys probably keep a better eye on that than I do. Well, I think a little bit of both. I think you can see new trends coming out in self-publishing, but also you can go back to old trends that traditional publishing has abandoned. Oh yeah. So uh, we talked about uh, before we started air, uh, before we started officially recording this episode. We talked about paranormal romance, right? Yeah. So for a mm-hmm. few years, and especially I think what was it in our in our high school years, Star? Mm-hmm. That yeah. primarily we saw this influx of paranormal romance come in, and then after a few years, like I want to say, like a number of years pass by, and all of a sudden you just don't see paranormal romance in traditional publishing anymore and this is beyond like even twilight or anything uh, and, uh, twilight i think came at the very end of that kind of wave um so now if you want to have new paranormal romance you go to self-published because they're still churning those out and it's still very successful and um but at the same time, there's never really been fantasy series um, that have had guns placed in their worlds. Like, usually when you think fantasy, you're like, oh, well, there's going to be swords and there's going to be bows and arrows and all those other right, things. But, you know, at a certain point, you just want to shoot the dwarf in the face. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at some point, you just want a machine gun hey, at somewhere some point, in there. I want to see a dwarf with a shotgun. That would just be amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so those things aren't really in traditional publishing still. Like, there's still not really a lot of what they call flintlock uh, fantasy in traditional publishing. I like that name. That's a yeah. pretty cool name. <laughs> right. Flintlock <laughs> Well, Christina just wrote a book that was uh, Flintlock Fantasy, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Gedland by William Ray. And he has this book um, or he has this world where rifles are a thing. And it's those like, you know, load them rifles where, you know, you have to pound in like the powder and stuff. Five minutes later, you fire a shot. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that's like what it is. Yeah, the (laughs) Flintlock. I think that's the uh, kind of rifles there are. Granted, I don't really know my rifles very well. You fire the gun and then, you know, (laughs) you both fire at each other. And you're just like, oh, you better just wait. Oh, buddy. Oh, man. Oh, you're going to get it when I'm done. Oh, you better I'm run. I'm clocked at six per hour. You yeah. better watch out. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it was this world that had rifles and goblins in it. So it was very unique in, in that it had those two aspects in there. Where if you normally read fantasy that does happen to have a gun in traditional fantasy, then it doesn't have dragons. It doesn't have goblins or any of that other kind of stuff. It's kind of like you're more... Um, I hate to say it, of games, Game of Thrones, Games of Thrones-ish kind of fantasy where a, a lot of the magic is kind of put in the background. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and not to say that George R. R. Martin does a bad job with putting magic into his fantasy world. He does a fabulous job. But a lot of his um, book is about human interactions. And that's where you're mainly going to find your fantasy novels that have guns in them. So self-publishing and indie publishing do hit upon those kind of um, uh, very either niche or uh, specific genres that just don't get their time in the sun with traditional fan- traditional uh, publishing. Mm-hmm. And admittedly, I'd love to actually read a book. And so if anyone who's listening to this knows a book where some guy gets to take AK-47s to, to dragons or something, just, yeah, go ahead and, and send no, that hold out on to a us. Second. <laughs> hold on a second. Let's back up here. We all know about MHI, <laughs> but I don't think okay. that quite qualifies. <laughs> well, well, I'm saying like, like, okay, no, that doesn't quite qualify what I'm thinking about. I want like a guy in full armor. You know, not like oh, you're talking about a knight walking around wielding yeah, the AK forty seven that was delivered. Man. He's on a horse the with okay. a machine gun. <laughs> so you want a high fantasy yeah. with guns yeah. in it at some point Absolutely. in time. Get through the chopper yeah, and the guy's amazing. like just one tank. Just one tank sent back yeah. in time to the yeah, Renaissance era. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I want. <laughs> Uh, that, Is that too much to ask? That would be pretty interesting. We're, so, yes, if anyone does listen to this and knows of a fantasy book, a high fantasy book with that kind of gun showing yeah. in it, by all means, drop us a line. Yeah, they're interested in a really boring right because, I mean, what are they going to do against the tank? Just rolling across a battlefield, literally squishing guys like tank. Well, I mean, they, they'd have to try to drown it, you know, with with people, right? <laughs> just keep just keep sending hordes and hordes of people until they it's maybe like, gum up the treads. Yeah, I yeah. don't know. <laughs> All of our gore is slowing it down. Keep going, boys. <laughs> if it isn't obvious by now, we are not experts when it comes to the self-publishing world. However, recently, I talked to someone who is one. So I'm Emily Ma, and then I also um, write and self-publish under my married name, E.M. Tippetts. Besides being our expert, Emily is also a highly accomplished author, and I got to talk to her about how she got started. Yes, so Emily Ma is how I got started um, in science fiction and fantasy, and so that's the name that I had when I went to Clarion West and, and you know, started, joined Critical Mass, which is a local uh, writers group here, and so that's the name that I associate really with all of that. But um, for various reasons that we can um, feel free to ask me about, um, I, I decided to also break into romance um, to some degree, and I decided to do that under a different name. Oh yeah, can I ask you why you decided to break into romance? Well, so um, see how if I can make the story short. Um, so I was in Critical Mass. I was the youngest and least published member of Critical Mass, which I didn't necessarily have a problem with, but it occurred to me that I could perhaps um, get more experience if I was willing to submit to a smaller print market. Uh, and I am LDS, and the LDS, um, the church actually owns a couple of publishers and has its own distribution arms, and and, and LDS culture has kind of its own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the bar for publication is a little bit lower there, and I don't mean that as any kind of insult. Uh, right. Most of the publishers, though, their goal is to help uh, LDS people find their voice and get published and, and sort of get, get off the ground. So I decided to write a romance novel simply because romance is it's the biggest um, publishing genre for good reason. Uh, it's one of the most popular. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wrote a romance novel um, and decided to use my married name since the novel didn't have any speculative elements. And um, 
and then went ahead and published uh, with a small press there. Um, I won't name names or anything like that. I, I will just say be careful if you go into small press publishing and people should feel free to contact me through my websites if they, mm -hmm. if they want to have, if they have any specific questions. Um, it wasn't the best experience in a lot of ways. Uh, so I ended up parting ways with that publisher and I still had a couple of these books just sitting on my hard drive. And, uh, you know, I would sort of submit them around. Um, it wasn't my first love. I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't super invested in them. Mm -hmm. But then um, indie publishing took off and that actually looked like a ton of fun. So I thought, why don't I do that? But it was still, like in the early days, you still had to be careful about self-publishing. You could really tarnish your name with it. So I, that's why I, again, stayed with E.M. Tippett's, um, which is, I had always kind of considered my sort of secondary sideline career. And I went ahead and published these two books thinking, well, you know, they'll make more money if my grandparents and parents and people like that buy them mm -hmm. than they will just sitting on my hard drive. And they took um, the second one especially took off. And the rest is history. The second one was your uh, someone else's fairy, fairy tale. tale. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, which is a quirky little book. I've, I fully understand why um, publishers weren't particularly interested in it. But the the profit margins in romance are also such that you can take a book that a publisher wouldn't want to invest in because they, you know their expenses are higher. They have all these people on salary, and you know they have all these overhead costs mm -hmm. that um, when you're working out of your living room, you won't necessarily have. Um, the other thing small press publishing taught me is that I actually did know a lot about the publishing industry, about how it works and, mm -hmm. and, um, and all of that. And so um, I figured if I, you know, there's plenty of room for this book to be a self-publishing success, um, even though it probably won't pull in the kind of revenue that a publisher would be interested mm -hmm. in. And, th and that turned out to be true. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're still, especially in, in such a industry as book publishing and even self-publishing, there's mm -hmm. there's such a vast and mass amount of books yes. being just churned out. You're yes. still really successful with that second book and kind of a series. It yeah, turned out, so I the, think, into like a, what, a six book series. Yeah, it's, I'm six books in on that series. So I, I've told I've sold about 150,000 books at this point. I um, have been lazy and haven't been. Um, keeping track of the exact numbers, but I, I know from how much I earn, I know I sell about between twenty and twenty-five thousand books a year, which you know, really the, yeah. I mean, and so, and if you keep your costs down, and if you're careful, and if your family's willing to eat a lot of ramen, um, <laughs> you know, you could you could actually theoretically live off of that um, in self-publishing. You know, you have to get out of the ninety-nine cent market. You have to be selling for at least two or three ninety-nine. But once once you're there, you know, it's actually a pretty decent monthly paycheck. Right. Well, yeah. and that's an interesting that that cost breakdown kind of comes in that you have to break into that two ninety nine, three ninety nine mm -hmm. uh, profit margin because through a publisher, the books are around nine ninety nine yes. for ebooks. Yes. But um, self publishing can make it to where that overhead is no longer really needing. You can do the two ninety nine, three ninety nine. Right. And well, and the thing is, um, in ebook publishing, so if you publish yourself at two ninety nine, 7% royalty on Amazon, you're making two bucks a book. Um, whereas if you went through a publisher, you're making $1 a book, mm -hmm. um, which is not to say that traditional publishing is a big ripoff or anything like that. Right. I know there are people who like that, but I, I don't agree. Um, traditional publishing, they invest a lot in their product. Um, you've got editors on salary, you've got a publicity department, ideally you've got, um, you've got the overhead of the office space that they rent. Um, the, the presses that they use are not small job presses. So, you know, you're talking about a print run in the thousand some odd, mm -hmm. um, just, just for your first printing. And, um, so, so that's why you, in um, traditional publishing, publishing, you make about a dollar a book. That being said, in self-publishing, you still need to figure out how to pay your editor and your cover designer and, and things like that. Yeah. Right. Well, and 
you know, this is now, uh, self-publishing has, has taken off over the last, what, 10 years, 10, 15 years? Yeah, I broke in, so I, I published my books right at the end of 2011, mm-hmm. and that's kind of when it took off. I got in just early enough that I was able to make a little bit of a splash. Like, a lot of other people who broke out at the same time back then would kind of vaguely know who I was if I walked up to them. Okay, very yeah. awesome. <laughs> at book fairs, yeah. Hey, I... That's amazing. Yeah, that was um, fun. So now a lot of writers uh, can now um, have a legitimate conversation in their head of whether they're going to go traditional routes or whether they're going to or try for traditional routes. I shouldn't say go with traditional routes because right. it's extremely hard to get in. Although that. You, you know, it's um, you know, speaking as someone who's never sold to a major press, I, I don't think it's that unattainable if you're competent. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, right. I think if it's something you're willing to work for, yeah, I think too often in the arts, um, people sort of. They love the Cinderella stories, and so they they kind of de- they kind of devote too much energy to the time spent sleeping in the fireplace, you know, right. kind of uh, which you know there it takes a while to break in, it takes a while to get off the ground. You're going to need to do something to make money um, until your books start to get traction, and even once you're established as an author, there can be bad times when you need to go back to to a day job. But it's not as impossible mm-hmm. as some people would would make yeah. you think. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but now people have to have that conversation in their head of whether they're going to try and go traditional or try and go self-publish. Mm-hmm. But there's still like these misconceptions that self-publishing is this kind of sure thing where you're going to sell books. Right. Um, but I so I've heard you at a lot of panels mm-hmm. uh, and talking about this very thing. Yeah. And I think the number that was thrown out was like a certain percentage, like one percent of people who self-publish actually sell a book. Yeah, it's actually I think it's two percent of self-published mm-hmm. books sell more than two hundred copies. Okay. Yeah, and so which you can take, you can look at and think, oh my gosh, you know why even bother? I decided to look at it as, all right, it's not impossible to get in the top two percent. Like that's a number. That's my goal. That's what I'll go for. You know, and and the marketing game keeps changing. Uh, When I first started self-publishing, you could be a lot more aggressive. Now there's a lot of people who are aggressive, so you can't do that. It's very unprofessional. but it's a matter of always being willing to learn, always being willing to listen to people who are selling a lot of books, and, and believing, you know, take a good solid look at, you know, people who are on the bestseller list and ask yourself, are these people really that much smarter than me? Because mm-hmm. they're not necessarily. No, yeah, not yeah. necessarily. It's more of, because um, ever since getting into this uh, book blogging and getting mm-hmm. in contact with authors, yeah. and it just seems more of um, trying to do that research and, mm-hmm. And uh, just kind of a grind that ends up going on to where as long as you're working hard, you're putting in that effort, mm-hmm. that's going to take you somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that seems like uh, the same thing with self-publishing. So yeah. really the advice isn't don't self-publish because it's hard, but mm-hmm. rather there is other things that go into it. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the aspects into self-publishing, um, and you mentioned earlier like editing and uh, mm-hmm. cover design and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so when I started, so we were living in London, in East London. We were living off of my husband's student stipend. Um, and so we were in this little one-room apartment with two kids, um, and that's that's how I got started. So our expenses, our expenses were low, but they're still eating up our whole income. Um, and so I did a lot of things myself. Um, and so I've been a member of Critical Mass, which is one of the local writers groups for at that point, I'd been in for over a decade. Now I don't want to say how long. It's <laughs> how old I am. But um, so my copy is—it's not um, spotless, but it was fairly clean. So I actually got away with the first couple of books without having an editor. I do that, you know, at least get a lot of people to read for typos and things like that. I did eventually, once I was making some money, go get those books professionally edited. 
Um, the other thing that I did was I, this was before um, independent formatters were a thing, and formatters are people who make the eBooks and the paperback interiors. Um, and uh, eBooks, you know, there was kind of, there was a window that traditional publishing left open. They didn't do particularly nice eBooks. If you if you get eBooks from like 2010 or before, they're often not very well formatted. Mm, you know, yes. like there's like missing paragraph breaks and yes. and weird stuff like that in there. And so that left the door wide open. I thought, well, if I'm going to do this myself, my eBooks are going to be the cutest eBooks because it was romance. I mean, they're going to be adorable. Um, so I figured out how to get graphics in there and all of these things. And then I also, you know, educated myself in tricks on how to get the um, file size as small as possible. Um, larger file sizes will also cut into your royalties. Um, and so I did that myself. Um, I did hire a cover designer, and it's a matter of knowing what you don't know. Um, my I'm, I'm a competent designer, but I'm not a spectacularly talented one. So I hired um, Jen Reese, Tiger Bright Studios. She's a She's an author as well, um, and so she did my first covers. And, um, you know, so I was able to save a lot of money by doing a lot of things myself, but I think also something very important to remember is when people say, oh, it's free if you do it yourself, that's only if you value your own time and labor at zero, mm -hmm. and that's not healthy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so um, when you're thinking of the amount of time, uh, you know, the, the amount of money that you would need to spend, you also need to think, like, how much time is it worth to me? You know, I could spend this time instead with my two very young children, and, the, you know, and these things, these things have value as well, and I think some people um, fall into a trap of working themselves to death, you know, in, in the name of saving a buck when you're not, you're not really getting good value at that point. Right, and uh, you had made all of this into your own business. You have a cover and formatting business. Yeah, I do now. So um, my books were indeed cute. And so um, I started getting a lot of people asking me who did my formatting. And so I started, I was like, well, I'll do your formatting for, you know, X amount of money. Um, and I actually got, the demand was so high, it was like, it was like, be a formatter or um, be a writer. And so, um, again, being LDS, my, I have a, my in-laws are a huge family that um, I was able to basically network through them and um, find several who had design backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, trained them up in um, the ebook formatting and then paperback formatting. There's, you know, there's actual, you know, um, classes and such to do that. So, th so they're all actually now professional formatters. And we've formatted a few thousand books at this point. Yeah, I mean, wow. yeah, we've had a really good steady supply. And, it, and we also, we don't just format for authors. We've got a, f a few publishers on our client list as well. Wow. Yeah, because again, it, it's um, formatting lends itself very well to this kind of cottage industry. You know, everybody works from home, and um, you know they're just contractors. Um, you know, so so I'm just issuing 1099s at the end of the year and everything like that. They, um, it, it's the kind of job you can sort of do at two o'clock in the morning. Nobody cares that you're doing that at two o'clock in the morning. And if you're st you're a work from home mom, which everybody is, incidentally, that we that wasn't intentional, but that's how it worked out. Is these are work from home moms that you know. At some years, we've had really good years. They've brought in very good incomes for themselves. And some years, it's just, you know, it covers your grocery money, which, hey, hey not bad. Grocery money can get really expensive <laughs> yeah. quick. And, and I, think, I think they also found it fun. They, um, so most of them live in my husband's hometown in Wyoming, this little town in Wyoming. And um, we've gone to a few different conferences, and I've brought them to Bubonicon. And it's when they get out of their little town and they're, you know, on the plane talking to the person next to them, they realize how incredibly cool it is what they do. 
Yeah. You know, because there's not many people in the world who do it. Yeah, that's and, a that's a fairly unique job prospect. It really is. And and what's cool is it's a it's a unique job, but it's something that you've everybody's seen the interior of a book. I would hope everybody's seen the interior of a book. <laughs> <laughs> Society has fallen very far. We're gonna cross fingers. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so it's something that everybody sees that you don't really think about who who are the people behind that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, uh it, admittedly while a lot of um a lot of people don't like to think so, or at least that I've talked to you about. Um, they like to think that covers aren't going to be like the driving force of people buying books, mm-hmm. but sometimes that's just how that works. That if yeah. you have the cute covers and if you have cute. I mean, and there are other ways to get more of your book out there, mm-hmm. um, but you have to understand whatever you're putting out there, you're asking for an investment in return. A book trailer can be great, but you're asking somebody to sit for two minutes staring at your trailer as opposed to other people's trailers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Right. And well, and now uh, a lot of people are asking, um, you know, I'll give a book for a review in return because they found that reviews mm-hmm. will get traffic in the door. And Yes. So if you can get um, your goal when you first get your book up is to get up to 50 reviews. Um, and um, despite what people say, yes, it's OK if your family is reviewing it. But bear in mind that Amazon might flag things about those um, reviews and take them down. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, honestly, your first readers aren't um, necessarily going to be your family. Um, get it, putting a book out is a little bit like being in a stage play where you've got a nude scene. Like not everybody, like, the people who really know you don't necessarily want to see that, you know. And they don't they don't want to have this experience where they've read something by you and hated it. And so, just you know, sort of as a protective measure, oftentimes they won't read um, until they start seeing other reviews come in. Really, your first readers are like the people who sat two seats behind you in math class in high school you know they know who you are but they don't really know you so they don't if it's terrible they don't really care (laughs) those those are actually um who will tend to pop up first and if they like your book they're the ones who go get excited and review it and they're the ones who tell their friends because they they do have that personal connection to you Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, so they're like curious curious how you're doing but yeah okay (laughs) sorry that new scene was well, you know, have you ever seen, so I forget who does this, but the the, um, the graph of, like, you know, the ideal situation is where you either love the person and love their books or hate the person and hate their books. And, like, which is more awkward, when you love the person, hate their books, or love the books or hate the person? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, these are, these are very real things in writer world. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> That's, uh, it, it, I've been getting a lot more yeah. lately, like, yeah. hmm. Yeah. I like their book, and this is getting really awkward. You know, when you have that moment where you're like, this book changed my life, and there's the author. Maybe I don't want to talk to them. <laughs> Maybe I just want to keep what I've got. <laughs> Do I want to know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's funny. Oh, so, sorry. Let me get back into... <laughs> sorry. I, and before oh, no, and before we great. began this, um, I, I talked about how audio, sometimes people do kind of ramble off topics. I'm trying not to do that. No, I <laughs> love it. I, we like it a lot. Yeah, no worries. Sorry, it's just me. Like, sometimes I, like, get on an off track yeah, mentally I, yeah. to where I'm like, put it back, girl. Just right. put it back. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you've also published... Um, so the majority of your work's under Emily Ma has been uh, short fiction. Yes. And the most recent one, at least that I saw in Heaven Help, I probably missed something, but was actually in, I believe, The Change, which uh, yes. is based off of S.M. Sterling's yes. uh, series. Yeah. I think that is the most recent short story I have out. I, I am not very good at writing short stories. Um, I appreciate 
great short story authors because what they do is indistinguishable from magic for me. Um, but I do at least, you know, try to get a few out, you know, in circulation. And so, um, yeah, I've never got to guess that because I've read um, Coyote Discovers Mars. And then I read um, in Shanghai Steams, mm-hmm. um, and I'm so sorry, I'm going to butcher this name, and I'm you know not what? going to mean to. It, I'm sorry, I know I've got an Asian name, but I'm not really entirely sure how to pronounce it either, so <laughs> That's I'm a- one of those Asians, <laughs> second generation. <laughs> Third generation, so yeah, I yeah, understand yeah. So, um... The last flight of the Long Kishi? I think so. Okay, we're going to go with that. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Um, So those are very uh, immersed in the cultural um, thing. So is that something apparent throughout all of your uh, science fiction and fantasy? It's gotten more and more and more so. So Coyote Discovers Mars was one of those. When I was at Clarion West, um, I was really, really bad at short fiction. And, you know, every week people would be like, well, it's like a squished up novel. (laughs) And it just... Coyote kind of came together by magic um, one of my later weeks, and that was the first time it went around the circle. And it wasn't perfect or anything, but you know, where most people were like, yeah, I actually like this. It was like kind of this mind-blowing experience. And then it was years before I wrote anything that qualified as a short story again. Um, so a few times I've been asked to write for anthologies that are Asian-themed. Um, my year at Clarion West was interesting. It, we had a record number of minorities. And it was kind of funny because, I won't say who it was, but the first... Um, woman with an Asian name to get in. Um, once you're in, you're kind of on a listserv, and you know she's talking to everybody. Else. She's like, "Yeah, I'm glad to be in, but I'm worried that you know that it was just my name." Well, that that year we had uh, me, um, Susan Yee, and Samantha Lee. <laughs> so like all these Asian names start popping up, <laughs> and so they're like, "Yeah, no, it wasn't just because they wanted a minority." Um, and so we actually had a, a bunch of them, and I had the privilege of learning from um, Octavia Butler. And Nalo Hopkinson. Oh, wow. Yeah, which was incredible. Um, and it's something I've only really seen in hindsight that now I'm trying to be a little bit more intentional about. Um, a lot of my stories include Native American um, cultures and, and so on and so forth. Um, so the anthology, The Dragon and the Stars, which I'm also in, even though I'm asked to write something about, you know, the, being part of the Chinese diaspora, I um that story takes place um, on a reservation with, an, with a um, fictionalized uh, Athabascan um, tribe. Um, and so you know, being aware of that now, I'm trying to you know, really pay a lot more attention to when I do that, how I do that, making sure I'm doing it appropriately and respectfully and making sure that um, people understand and, and treat, treat these cultures with the, with the appropriate level of respect. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because... For so long, they weren't. <laughs> right. Well, and I mean, so that book called, a, that um, short story called Across the Sea is about, I also have a very good friend who's a linguistic anthropologist. Um, it's about um, this tribe has this kind of crazy story that might be about some Chinese um, explorers blown off course. And, I, you know, it, it, these things that happen in the story are fairly unbelievable because they're completely fictional. But um, a anthropologist got wind of this story and used it in a textbook, but the story was so funny to people, the te- and the textbook was so well-written, it actually hit the New York Times bestseller list. And so the, the tribe and their last native speaker are kind of ridiculed for this. You know, it's like, oh, this, they have this ridiculous story. Like, isn't that funny? And, you know, and, and, the, and, you know, it's written in this sort of mocking but entertaining way that the public just loves. And it's, it's sort of dealing with the fallout from that, and, and it's a young 
woman who's you know sort of in her late teens, early twenties, mm -hmm. um, who is actually the granddaughter of the last native speaker of their language. Yeah, and just kind of like she has to deal. She's she's working in. Now I forget, um, but she works for the tribal government. I think she works in public outreach. Basically, she has to deal with this anthropologist guy who okay. <laughs> shows up um, yeah. when they start finding some really interesting artifacts on native land that kind of maybe might have something to do with this story. And then he shows up. <laughs> and so, you know, it's just, it's trying to show that um, the pitfalls of um, trying to hang on to your culture when people sort of see you as a bug under a microscope, mm. you know, and they don't necessarily see you as a person. They don't necessarily see your tribe as people, mm. you know. Yeah. It's just they have that distance that allows them to just sort of be inappropriate. Yeah. Pretty cool. Oh my gosh, sorry, that's all very interesting. And I could probably go on to a whole podcast just about that. So focusing once more. All right. Um, so I follow you on Twitter and uh -huh. I recently saw that you were um, putting in for a paranormal Yes. Well, so, can you tell us a little bit about that? So now that I've gotten a relative amount of success in romance, which I love, and I love my romance readers, and I will keep writing um, as E.M. Tippett's. Um, I'll, I'll, there'll be at least a book a year coming out under that name, um, and I'm very grateful for everybody who's given me um, this career that I've been privileged to have. Um, but I did all, the dream was always to be a science fiction and fantasy writer, so now I'm sort of seeing if I can buy myself a plane to get home, so to speak. Um, and now that the the publishing market has changed substantially from even 2011 when I got started self-publishing. Um, it now makes sense for me to delve in uh, and self-publish some science fiction and fantasy. It's, it's not really, tarnishment is not a concern. If, if the books don't go anywhere, they just kind of don't go anywhere. Nobody even knows that they existed. It's, it's kind of a hard, no harm, no foul kind of situation nowadays. Um, and because I did romance and do romance, um, I'm going to release a trilogy of paranormal romance um, to, I hope, entice some of my romance readers um, to cross over and read. Um, and also because it, paranormal romance is, you can't give it away to a traditional publisher. Traditional publishers publish on such long time frames, and paranormal romance has been hot for so long that they're just kind of, they're not going to touch it. But it's very much alive and well in um, independent publishing. And so um, I have an account on Radish, so I am able to release my, pre-release my books on Radish, and so this Paranormal Romance trilogy will first come out on Radish, which is an app. Okay. Yeah, it's an app that, so you can get it on your phone, and the way it typically works is um, books are published on there, um, and they'll unlock a chapter at a time, and you can read the chapters for free, or if you are feeling impatient, you can pay to read the, the later chapters. Um, and they've just done an excellent job of building a community there, and, um, and paranormal romance um, is one of their strong suits, so it makes sense to start start there. And so um, it'll be six months exclusive on Radish, and then I'll I'll take it wide and just see see if I can get lightning to strike twice. <laughs> yeah, good. yeah, excellent. Now I I'm a big fan of paranormal romances. Yeah. I did see that. I saw that a lot of um, traditional publishers were publishing for so long, and then all of a sudden like it tapered off in the traditional, yeah, but not in the independent. Yeah. And it's just because, you know, traditional, they invest a lot of money and they don't want to invest a lot of money in something that won't necessarily sell. And when something has been hot for a certain number of years, it's reasonable to expect that maybe two years from now it'll be gone. Yeah, so they're trying to guess that if that trend's going to go away. Yeah, they're, so they're trying to find the next big trend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, very cool. 
And then is there any, like, you're already working on a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, but is there any other uh, works that you're um, working on currently or that you're going to be having out currently? Um, or is it kind of just focusing on? Well, so I've got three different spec fic um, concepts that I'm working on. So the paranormal romance is um, for independent publishing. And it's set in a world that leaves it wide open to be able to do a lot of different kinds of paranormal. Um, we're, you know, the first one is, is vampires. Um, but you, you know, it, by the end of the trilogy, you'll see that the world is such that I could do werewolves or fae or, you know, any of those things. So I've got that. Um, and the way that I'm writing those is I'm writing the trilogy just sort of as one 180,000 word novel. Um, so I can stay sort of in the moment and know these characters. Um, one thing I've learned from series writing is, especially if you write other things in between, it, it can be a real challenge to get back into your series because you're just like, okay, wait, who are you people? <laughs> you know, what was her name? Oh, she had a middle name, and I know it's somewhere in the previous five books. You know, that's <laughs> not the big notebook yeah. of notes that you have. Which I have to say, thank goodness for fans. I mean, they are just so awesome when it comes to stuff like that. You know, so um, I always offer. Um, arc editions of my books to my mailing list to read for free um, and I just ask if they catch typos and they, and they will they'll catch like things I wouldn't have even thought of like well so-and-so actually had green eyes in the previous book I'm like that's awesome <laughs> um, and I know a lot of writers go and read their series before they write the next book in the series and I applaud I mean that certainly makes a lot of sense but I there is so much awesome stuff to read I you know reading my own stuff it's just like that would be a form of, I don't think, I think that violates the Geneva Convention for me to have to actually do that. Um, I mean, and I, it's not that I don't love my books and I don't love my characters. It's just that, you know, it's like hearing your own voice, like probably I will on this podcast, you know, where you're just like, okay, I guess, that, I guess that's what that sounds like. You know, I'm glad other people like it, but. Um, so, uh, so these um, paranormals are made so that I just sort of bang out the whole trilogy um, at once. And then once that trilogy's done, you might see the characters like pop up in other books, but it, that, that's kind of the end of really delving into those particular characters. Um, and then I've written a fair amount of hard um, science fiction for young adult and middle grade. Okay. And so I've, I've sold two of those short stories to Analog and um, one of them to a, an anthology by um, Julie Sharnada. Um, and and that just has to do with uh, near future space exploration with kids and, and the kind of dilemmas that, um, that you would find. So for, for example, there's a story of a spaceship where things go horribly wrong and there are children on board. Now the problem is out in space, you have to evacuate according to who is the most useful and who can keep the most other people alive. Well, that, guess who that puts at the back? You know, the end of that list, you know, so sort of dealing with things like that. And, and I find very fascinating the dilemma of when will we ever allow whole families to go into space? Because I actually foresee that being a real sticking point mm -hmm. of really wanting to treat space like, like McMurdo and Antarctica, you know, it just being like an outpost, but you don't go and actually live there and, and create a life there. And so that's what a lot of my um, YA and middle grade hard SF deals with. And so um, I've had one book that um, has done, you know, very well for itself in that a lot of it, agents know who I am and they remember me when I talk to them. Um, and it, um, I guess I very nearly sold to a publisher that um, had solicited it. I guess there was one reader that was really gunning for it and everybody else was like, you know, it's just a little too young um, because it, that publisher doesn't specialize in middle grade. 
So that, that book's been kicking around for about 15 years. Um, and so I think it's time just to write another book <laughs> of that kind and see if I can actually sort of get over this hump and actually get an agent. Um, and so I'm doing that. And then I've got a um, high fantasy concept, which again deals with an indigenous culture. And that's one that, um, that I'm very careful with because there's, it can be a bit of a minefield um, because the indigenous culture is Puebloan. And Puebloans are, for very understandable reasons, very, very protective of a lot of their, um, a lot to do with their lifestyle, specifically things that are sacred yeah. to them. Uh, the slight advantage I have is that not being native, I don't know those things, and so I, I am less likely to be accused of appropriate. It's like, well, you know, if that actually matches up with something, that's a coincidence. Um, but it's really been a matter of trying to figure out if I can write about this group um, without really even delving into their sacred things. Mm -hmm. uh, my degrees are in philosophy, politics, economics, and law. So that's what I'm interested in, is the economics and the politics of colonization. And, um, and the concept is just that um, on your sort of Wild West sort of frontier, they're, um, the dominant race is a European-esque race. They are a little more Game of Thronesy than mm -hmm. The Europeans that came out here, so they, you know, they have the really cool Gothic architecture because that just looks cool, um, and and they're and they're you know they're pretty well established and y they live like in the Middle Ages of Europe. Um, and the thing that a lot a lot of people don't realize is natives are tend tend to be thought of as very primitive, which at the time they absolutely were not. You know, their their technology was different, but they were not primitive compared to the Europeans that came over. And for whatever reason, we just sort of freeze natives at whatever their technological level was back then, even though they're here driving cars and you know, using the internet yeah. and all right along with the rest of us. Um, but there's still sort of that prejudice. So um, on one of these frontier towns, um, they were famed for having a brilliant engineer. And that engineer has died, but somebody is still engineering. <laughs> and engineering phenomenally. <laughs> and, and that's, I mean, I get, you can probably guess. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm where that's going and, and just sort of what, what would be the political economic fallout. It's not a what if, like what if the natives had great engineers. I mean, they did. They, they had great societies. The, the largest building um, on the North American continent until 1800 was Chaco Canyon. Um, you know, so, un, but unfortunately that's not particularly remembered, but it's a what if, it's what if one of their great engineers had survived the plagues just at the right time, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and, and sort of, fill in with the right people to baby, to baby, you know, um, leverage history in a different direction. Okay, very cool. That sounds fantastic. I yeah, and it's just something I want to be careful with. I want to do it respectfully. Um, I do talk to um, friends of mine who are Puebloan, um, who I've, you may see them in the acknowledgments by their first names. Um, the one thing I really want to make sure of is I'm not going to ever use anybody as a meat shield. <laughs> If anybody ever has questions like, well, you know, why do you think that was a good idea? I, I'm not going to say, well, so-and-so said it was okay. It's, it's all on me. Mm -hmm. You know, but the decisions are all mine. And yeah. yeah, that's good. That accountability factor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, very awesome. So not only are you um, a successful self-publishing author um, and you do two different genres and you've been churning out book after book and you have your own business that does cover design and formatting, but you also run your site blackgate.com. <laughs> yeah, that's not my site. I just am a video blogger for it. Okay, you're yeah. a video blogger. Yeah, so that's, um, so Blackgate is, um, they, they started out as a print venue, uh, and they published short stories, and then their website um, became, it's kind of a central, 
it's like it's like one of the trades. It's like your trade fantasy okay. magazine. Mm -hmm. um, it's online, and um, they have shifted from print publication to online publication. But so the funny story about that is when you know I was at Clarion West. Um, two of the most popular genres among my classmates were hard science fiction and adventure fantasy, and those are considered two of the most competitive um, genres to break into. And I don't have any kind of science degree um, and um, never particularly cared for adventure fantasy. Um, and so Blackgate was the adventure fantasy that everybody was trying to crack, and Analog was a hard science fiction. I've cracked them both twice. That's kind of random that that happened. <laughs> so I want to clap, but yeah, at the same yeah. time, I don't want to blow out ears over yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, and so... Um, and so I, I um, sold a couple of short stories to um, Blackgate and then um, was asked to blog about various things and then I kept blogging for them and then I got lazy about typing and started just videotaping and tape recording uh, my interviews so I video and audio blog for them now. <laughs> there you go. But yeah, I mean, and I have the advantage of knowing a lot of people, a lot of writers. And so, mm -hmm. so oftentimes, so right before somebody's book launches, I'll do an interview of them, theirs, and things like that. I don't, I don't know that it makes a massive difference, but it's something, you know, something else that they can use, they can link to, they can tweet right. about. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming thank and you. talking with us. It was a fantastic talk, and well, I hopefully we can talk again when yeah. some of your books come Anytime. out. Excellent. Thank you. So much. Thank you. So that was the interview with Emily Ma. What did you guys think? Was there anything surprising that what she said, especially about the industry or anything along those lines? Um, about the industry? Uh, I mean, uh, definitely, uh, uh, she definitely covered a lot of things that I wasn't really, really aware of, you know, um, especially with how she seemed to start branching out, you know, which is, which is incredible, you know, um, uh, the, just what was capturing me was, you know, the, the different genres that she's trying to break into. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. And you know, it actually, it's funny when she talked about going into romance. Um, it, if, if you look at a lot of writers and especially, um, women authors tend to break into romance first before going into sci-fi and fantasy. Yeah. In fact, we are at, when we are at Bubonicon in August, there was a whole panel full of women who wrote sci-fi fantasy. Most of them broke into romance, and I think only one was still writing in romance at that time. Wow. Yeah, so that wow. that was an interesting one for me. I think the most shocking thing for me when I was interviewing her is that, think about it, $1 per book you get yeah. in earnings through traditional publishing. That's crazy. So for each book an author, uh, that's sold, an author gets $1 for each. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, it's disheartening, you know, to, to, to think of that. Um, I mean, uh, uh, as long as you sell, you know, enough books, you know, you get, you, you, you get a decent cut of that, I guess, but it sounds like, you know, not so good. <laughs> well, now we can look at how much money J.K. Rowling's made. <laughs> I'm well, I mean, we'll that's know. kind of it, though, right? Like traditional publishing, you might assume that they're selling a lot more books, so it yeah. doesn't matter. And while you might make more money from self-publishing, 70% of zero is still zero. Yeah. yeah. As I read in an article. So, uh, yeah. What if the average is like 20,000 books, you know? Then it's that's like true. you're only making 20,000 bucks off of, off of, uh, well, and maybe this. not even even that because um i was reading an article on traditional publishing and it was saying that 
think about it like this is most of the time you get an advance if you sign on with a publisher. So um, the one gal broke it down saying, say you get $40,000 in an advance from a publisher. Uh-huh. You have to sell enough books to make that advance before you see royalty checks coming to coming through. Oh, wow. So a lot of authors, it'll take them years to get their first royalty check. So it's almost like you're going to the publisher for a loan. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. And so, you know, that's it. It does make you really think like if you if you write and and you want to get your works out there, what are you going to do? Do you want to go into self-publishing where, yeah, you're going to have to put up your own front costs, yeah. but you'll see return kind of a lot sooner if you're able to sell? Or do you want to go with traditional publishing where you might not get published for years? Like, I think sometimes even after you sign with a publisher, it won't come out for like another two or three years. Wow. So there's all those things that you have to kind of. Yeah, definitely. Put into consideration. Yeah, I mean, self-publishing, you know, is, is definitely worth considering, especially with uh, with Emily. It sounds like she did a lot of research about, about the various subjects she was writing about, um, especially talking about the... Uh, the uh, um, indigenous uh, uh, high fantasy deal. Mm-hmm. Um, that that sounded actually pretty pretty interesting to hear about, especially involving uh, architects and engineers of uh, of uh, the Pue- Pue- Puebloans. Is that is that am I pronouncing that correctly? I think so. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it just shows how much work she put into into making that a success. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm very appreciative to Emily for talking with me about all this because she talks about a lot of industry stuff that I feel people don't really want to talk about <laughs> because it's behind the scenes. It's, it's talking about business and yeah. a creative field that you don't want to talk business in. So I was very much appreciative that she was able to, that she was willing to just talk straight. Yeah. She, with. she sounded very knowledgeable and definitely someone that you'd want to, they, they'd want it. Yeah, definitely. Contact, yeah. Yeah, that was my number one takeaway is that, holy moly, this lady knows a massive amount about the industry. Like, my yeah. goodness. So, yeah. uh, I mean. I think she's really admirable. She, she's got so much on her plate, but, like, she seems really excited by it and passionate. Like, really? I be like her. <laughs> I know. That's awesome. Like, I, I feel like I'm. I need to get that attitude. <laughs> well, that, that kind of goes back to the original thought that I had is that, you know, if you're going to get into the self-publishing realm, you got to be just driven to go out and learn and just assimilate as much as you can possibly come across. Because, I mean, you know, Emily's a great example of that. Like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the entire time we're recording that interview, my mouth is pretty much a gape. Like, <laughs> wow. No kidding. Yeah, no, it's it's rather remarkable how how much goes into it. And I think that because this is a creative pursuit, people don't see that or it's not really thought about because admittedly, I didn't, I didn't think about those kind of things before, (laughs) before getting into um, the blog and, and talking to authors and talking with Emily. I didn't really think about how much work behind the scenes goes on. Yeah. Like I didn't realize formatting. I mean, I guess I should have, but like that formatting would be such a lucrative market and that there's such a need for it. I just, I don't know. Never thought twice. You know, same, same. I was like, Oh, just put it in word. And what did she, she she trained up two, two, uh, two extra people or something to to be able to professionally edit. Yeah. She trained up, she trained up like other people to 
professionally edit so and hey. and format so that we well, not edit but format uh, books so yeah. that they can come out. And yeah, I, I'm with you, Star. I did not realize that that was a thing. I, I, I for some reason I thought that was like part of the editing. You know, I yeah. don't know why. You know, I think so too. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. I said, I was like, just open up Word. <laughs> right? yeah. just, just put it in a box somewhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we'll just type this up in Word real quick. Yeah, Comic Sans sounds good. Export. I see no profit. red squiggly lines. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> There's a blue one, but no one cares about the blue one. Yeah. Yeah, that, that just green? means they, you know, you did it really well in that spot. That's right. <laughs> They're just giving you kudos. That's Extra not about grammar. Well, I think it's the, like green and blue ones. I don't know what the difference is between. Is them. there green and blue? Squiggles? I think blue is like here's a suggestion for what I think would green. be better. I don't know. And green, I thought was grammar. Green is grammar. Red is spelling. I've, no, I've definitely. I think you're right about red. the blue. The blue is like how to make it more concise. I think that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, why am I not that, seeing more blue in my work? Then <laughs> it just gave up on me. This whole work would be blue. <laughs> I mean, that's all I ever see is just nothing but like oceans of blue. <laughs> that's it. Oh, that's funny. Yep. <sighs> so, what was left on the agenda? I think that was actually it. Okay, so I believe we are going to wrap up our session today. Uh, I think the main thing we can take away from all of this is that self-publishing is not easy. It's a very admirable road to go down. (laughs) So for those of you who do self-publish and indie Mm -hmm. publish, kudos to you for taking in all that work. And may you have uh, success in all your endeavors. Um, Let's go on with what we're reading now or what we plan to read here in a few weeks or whatever the case may be. And we'll start off with Martin. Well, actually I'm in, in between books, but, uh, I just finished up at uh, uh, Pet Cemetery because Star had started reading it and she let me Yay. know that, that the, uh, the Pet Cemetery movie was going to be coming out. So I finished up Pet Cemetery. Um, I'm probably going to pick up another Stephen King book here pretty soon. I'm you've not sure been, exactly. You've been on that. a Stephen King binge. Yeah. I have been. <laughs> He's yeah. so good. He is really good, though. Because yeah. you told me a lot about Pet Cemetery, so I'm guessing you liked it a lot. I did like Pet Cemetery. Um and I could probably go into like an entire rant about about it, but uh, ultimately, it's it's like um, it's like a dive into just the concept of death itself, mm-hmm. right? And and death kind of pervades the entire tone of the book, and it is it is the, like tonally speaking, it's kind of a a sad book. You know, it's a it's a pretty big letdown. It's not 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 like in quality. It's a great book, but it is very. Uh, it's just it's a little morbid. You know? Okay. Did you know he almost wasn't even going to publish it? I he did. Tucked it away in a drawer and thought, "Oh, that's that's yeah, too much." Yeah, and I guess he had to he had to fill one more slot from his publisher, and he's like, "Okay, fine." Yeah. And so he grabbed that thing out of there. But yeah, it's it is really see. I'm dark. amazed. There's a book that made Stephen King say too much. Uh, <laughs> Just what was too the much. book where he probably the theme of, of children, maybe probably had something to yeah. do with that. that might, I think that might do mm. it. Yeah, definitely the the kiddos. I'm, well, well, the kiddo. The kiddo. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you've been uh, listening to the stand off and on, yeah, for a while because that's a that's a bit like that's a long. Well, it's because I, I like I uh, consume it in chunks and then I jump over to something else. Mm. Um, how how long is it in the audio Because it's like a thousand something page for the unabridged, right? Five hours or something like that. Thirty five hours. Thirty five hours. I can probably get you an exact number, but huh. it's pretty long. And it's is, wait, I, I was about to say, is that with times two the speed? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. Uh, 
through the stand is you technically crunch through that in a work week then, right? If it's thirty five hours. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, the I don't know how you that's guys about can thirty do hours. It. Thirty yeah. thirty hours and forty forty six minutes. Um yeah, but that that's um that's with the assumption that that's all I'm doing all day long and I never just get to just sit on my butt and not have to get up constantly and mm-hmm. work on this, work on that. And so yeah. I never get to just sit there and listen to it. Oh my goodness. I've actually been able to read more books lately <laughs> because of that. Yeah. <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> All right. What about you, Star? What have you been reading? Did you finish Pet Cemetery? I did. I liked it quite a bit. And I picked up Dracula. I'm almost finished with that. Actually, inspired by the, yes, by the Halloween episode because listening to it, I realized I actually haven't read that many classic horror so i haven't either i still haven't read that dracula how is it it's really good i i'm surprised by how good it is i know it sounds terrible but i wasn't sure what to expect but it's actually really scary and gripping (laughs) i I think i thought the uh the the introduction to it was actually pretty gripping i uh it was i loved how uh how uh yeah, how Dracula is interacting with the uh, oh, I can't remember the guy's name anymore. It's been so long. Uh, Jonathan. Jonathan, yeah, just uh, just talking to the to, to that guy, and the whole time the guy's there just to kind of help him out with going to to uh, to London, right? Um, yeah, and it gets progressively more like ominous. I know, and, and it's like, like, oh, this guy's not going to make it out. No way. You're just like, get out, <laughs> leave. Have, have you read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? No, but I'm, that's next. Definitely, on my list. Oh, yeah, definitely yes. pick it up. Beautiful book. Yeah, <laughs> <sighs> oh, I have those books. Start. I haven't read them. I'll admit. That's my, uh, yeah. I'll probably just pick up a classic verse or something as the next read. Okay. Um. Yeah. All right. Any other books? Star or just Dracula? For no. Now? Dracula, and then I'll pick up Frankenstein next. Okay. Darn cool. tootin'. What about you, Kren? All right. On my sites. Um, I have uh, Neverwinter written by Ari Salvatore. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to read that until about the end of this month when all my classes are over and I stop pulling my hair out. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's got a big bald spot for you people who can't see him. Yeah, yeah huge, and it's only getting bigger. Uh, no eyebrows left. It's but, terrible. Uh, supposedly, there might be a certain character. I, I don't know if anyone, if, if any of the listeners are fans Artemis of Ari Salvatore. Curry? Yes, yes. Artemis <laughs> and Trary, I, I, I hope that I find this guy in there because he's the only reason why I keep reading the series. <laughs> I've never read that series either. It's I'll, a, have to, I'll have to check it out. The, the previous books I've read are pretty good. I can't wait to crack this one open. Um, I've had it on my shelf for a while, and uh, and I remembered it when uh, when my son decided to start, you know, pulling books out <laughs> randomly. <laughs> what is that you have? What is that? <laughs> oh, yeah, I have this. So... <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, yeah, I can't wait to read it. Okay, excellent. Um, so I'm currently reading Down Among the Sticks and Bones by Shannon McGuire, and I keep thinking I'm pronouncing her name wrong. I probably am. But it's the second book in the Wayward Children series, which is a phenomenal series of books. Um, they're less than 200 pages each, and they're just really good. They're pretty much what would happen to the kids of Narnia after they came back. And it's more kind oh. of like a... They all got stuck in mental institutions. Yeah, they all got, <laughs> yeah, they all got stuck <laughs> got in mental institutionalized. institutions. But the first book, Every Heart is a Doorway, it kind of falls along that those lines. Like this girl went to the land of the dead and it's kind of um, reminiscent of Greek mythology, um, huh. land of the dead. Uh, but pretty much going into what happened to her after she came back out of that that actually sounds pretty good. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it, sounds it great. was amazing. And this one actually is following two characters who were in the first book and pretty much their adventure into 
a world called the Moors. And it's pretty much a Dracula, uh, Dracula type world where this guy, his, he's, uh, and he doesn't give his name, but he calls himself the master. And, um, him and this other guy, uh, who is called Dr. Bleak, um, take on these two twin girls as their kind of apprentices. And it starts out with the two twin girls, Jacqueline and Jillian, and they're called Jack and Jill. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> I see what you did there. I uh, see what you did there. And they go into the moors, um, and it's really about how their parents had given them like really specific roles. Like they thought of Jacqueline as the really girly girl. So they made her wear pink and made her wear dresses and really fit into that kind of mold. And with Jillian, they're like, she's a tomboy. She's going to play sports and all this other stuff. And so they really controlled what the girls wore and what the girls did. And then they go into the moors and it find you find out that the girls actually have opposites of what those expectations are. So, uh, Jacqueline, who's called Jack, um, really likes going into the science of things and really likes experimenting. And Jillian just wants a chance to be able to be, you know, kick butt and a girl, girly girl at the same time. So she wants to be able to still do sports like things, but wear pretty dresses while she does it. That, that might cause complications. <laughs> yeah, she was like, I still want to play soccer, but I want to play it wearing a frilly dress. And I'm like, cool. Sorry, my brain just got stuck on the feet. whole Jack and Jill thing. Yeah, well, and there's a joke about that. Like, uh, the when they go into the moors, uh, the master comes and he's all, so Jack and Jill went down a hill. And I was like, ah, 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 I see what you did there. That's a fetch a pillow of water. <laughs> You're playing into my love of puns. <laughs> okay, slightly off topic. I have to ask. Star, do you like Catcher in the Rye? Why would you bring this up around me? Starla. You know, I don't think I've actually read it. (gasps) Oh, that's fine. Um, Don't. Just just let us, uh, just let me and Quinn tell you. Yeah. It's an excellent book. Very good. Very deep. Very deep, actually. It it actually goes a lot deeper than you'd imagine. It's like the Mariana Trench. The Mariana Trench of depth. Exactly. It's the Mariana Trench. You know why they're bringing this up is because I have a hate relationship (laughs) with Catcher in the Rye. A hate relationship, not a love hate. No, it's not a love hate. It's a hate hate. It's a hate without the love. She loves to hate it. I love to hate it. Now, well, and it's not even the writing in and of itself. Like um, J.D. Salinger, is it J.D. Salinger? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. He's a great writer. And I, I think that even when I read Catching the Rye, it's that I hate the main character, Holden Caulfield. He's whiny. He's and I know, that that, I know that that's like, he's, he's, pro- he's going oh, through. I, his brother died. Care, <laughs> he's going through this change. In, uh, Did he really? Yeah, his brother died. That's why he's had the, the he had his brother's catcher's mitt. It's, yeah. <laughs> and and, and think not. about it. That's the idea behind Holden Caulfield. I know. Holden this, Caulfield. Holden Caulfield. <laughs> he's not beholden to anyone, his but name. you know. His I own. thought you said Holy Caulfield. <laughs> yeah, that's his, <laughs> Cauliflower. That's his name. Holy Caulfield. No, that's the whole point is he's going through this like trial of adolescence, right? He's writing the shift between becoming an adult and becoming, a, you know, instead exactly. of Exactly. He doesn't know what he wants to do. Yeah. I just, I just couldn't, I just can't. I just. Don't worry. I'll edit this out. But I'm, I'm just saying that. Feel, yeah. Don't, don't put this in. They're going to know I hate, I look very classic. It's an incredibly critical. Well, it's read also like a very divisive life book too. Because there are, there are people I, that are like, I, I hated that book. After Frankenstein. <laughs> don't do that to yourself, Star. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> It's just a book that nothing happens. 
Well, but, sorry, well, if I he, hate it, I'll fly to America so I can hit you know, No, 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 no. He pays uh, a prostitute Prince to sit there and it, just chill me. out with him. And uh, <laughs> I don't know why, why he did. Uh, it's uh, kind of funny because, you know, like she, she gets there and nothing happens. And he's like, I don't want to do anything. I've never been with a girl before. <laughs> I think I've never he, seen a girl naked. Cry? He, yeah, he, he does, does cry. Yeah, he, he cries. Well, is it that yeah. after he gets his ass kicked by the bouncer? Yeah. Girl? Yeah, because she's like, okay, well, I'm going to go, but I'm going to bring my my uh, bellhop in. And the guy's like, like you know, pay her the money. And he's like, like I didn't, we didn't do anything. And he's like, yeah, no, no. You guys are in the room together. Give her money. <laughs> yeah. And he's in. Yeah, that was a pretty sad scene, too. If you, you know. Well, bo- both Noel and Christina hate the book. And so I, I think it's worth the read and two it's worth kind of two for two. Yeah. Maybe you can be the tiebreaker. Okay. I'm a little frightened, but it's, I will it's, do it. It's not hor- for science. It's for not science. horribly science. written. Like it's not horribly written. I just don't like the main character. I just can't. I would I argue sympathize. that it is horribly written. And that is how it's, that's what, that's the beauty in it. That's the beauty in it. Cause it's as if it's been written by the character who is like, by in, like, like a teenager. Right. Yeah. And he's terrible at writing, which is hilarious. Cause you're saying in the beginning that, that, uh, that this one guy was asking him to do his English homework for him. And yet, throughout the whole thing, he's misspelling things. He's uh, the he's, other uh, weird grammatical issues throughout the whole. Is that everyone else okay. in the family is really like they're all writers, right? They're all like like yeah, literary, uh, literarily inclined. This is giving me flashbacks to a painful time in my past. Oh, sorry, sorry. We might actually want to move on with the the exit. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. All right, so that's the end of the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. I will have links in the episode description. If you want to leave a comment, please do so down below. And I will um, put up my Twitter handle and uh, my email. So if you want to get a hold of us to suggest any books for us to read, that'd be fantastic. Otherwise, you have a great day and may you get lost in the book.